This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. To Mayor's Town Hall, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us for the entire hour. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm great, thanks. You survived yesterday's meeting? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, uh, probably not the typical way we wind up our, uh, you know, end of year, but... uh very two uh, momentous, uh, important issues that we dealt with yesterday, and uh, I think we ended up in a, a pretty good place overall. Did you make the right call? Uh, I, I believe on, on, on which? Well, let's let's talk about the LRT issue okay. first of all. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think he, uh, you know, the, 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 I mean, I, I wish we'd had made this call four months ago. I think we. Uh, we could have done at that point because we kind of ended up in the same place, which is where most people were, which is uh, ask the province to uh, to unionize and to consider the ATU as part of that uh, that if effort. Uh, we can't require them to do that, but we can certainly request that. And we're going to continue on with the original design, build, finance, operate, maintain process, which I think is exactly the right way to go and uh, probably should have uh, confirmed that uh, four months ago as well. So we've lost uh, some time. Uh, but uh, we haven't lost the project, and it moves forward, and uh, I think it moves forward in the, in the right way. And uh, hopefully Metrolinx can see their way towards uh, unionization as, uh, you know, a positive step to, uh, you know, provide good jobs in our community. Can the city actually do that? I mean, the request that these be union jobs or the, there they be a pay equity situation that they, they talked about yesterday, at least some of the councillors did? Well, we can request it. That doesn't mean that they're going to do it. Uh, so this is a project that's uh, totally in the hands of Metrolinx in the province of Ontario. They're funding it. They're, uh, they're, their billion dollars is making it happen. They're, they're, they're doing the procurement process and doing the contract. Contracting uh, issues beyond operations and maintenance, so they can uh, clearly. They came back to us last time and said uh, when we asked for, or council asked for, the operations and manage, uh, management process through the HSR or maintenance, I should say, through the HSR. They said. Well, you could. Uh, we won't do the maintenance side, but but if you wanted to do operating, this is what it will. will uh, this is the kind of responsibilities you'd be taking on if you do. Uh, clearly, that is uh, of concern to uh, most members of council, and they uh, they pulled away from that uh, fully. Uh, but, uh, you know, do believe that uh, they're, they're going to be unionized employees anyway, so why not, uh, why not uh, cement that in, uh, in some sort of an agreement with Metrolinx to, uh, to ensure that that's the way it moves forward? But is this going to be a deal breaker? I know you made some comments at the meeting yesterday that we, we meaning the city, are back on track, and, and I guess you are until the next time that somebody on council decides they want to throw a monkey wrench into this, and that seems to be happening on a pretty regular basis. Uh, that's true, and I, as I said to you a long time ago, this is going to be a roller coaster ride until the shovels hit the ground. Uh, this is uh, that we're going to go through another election. Uh, you know, this will be a debatable issue once again. We will not have contracts signed before the the next municipal election or the provincial one. In fact, so it's going to be an election issue. Uh, you know, uh, we, we there's also a realization that uh, significant amounts of money has been spent already because we have confirmed that we're moving forward on this project. By the time we get to the election, probably a hundred million dollars will have been spent in terms of uh, land acquisition, design, uh, you know, underground service design, the whole, the whole, you know, the whole. Ball of wax. So I would say, uh, you know, it's going to be a very tough thing for people to reject, and and, and, the, and there's no good reason to do it. Uh, you know, all the parameters around why we're moving forward in this direction were actually enunciated by the union representatives that came uh, yesterday and delegated and said that they all uniformly support this project because it creates good jobs, it provides uh, assessment growth, uh, provides uh, community benefit opportunities, uh, you know, all the things that we uh, set out as the mission to have this billion-dollar investment achieve. We're going to achieve, and uh, all, m- virtually almost everybody that came and attended yesterday confirmed that uh, as a positive step forward for our city. So 
I'm going to have to defend this uh, through the next election process, and I'm happy to do that because it's the right thing to do for our city. Is there a tipping point where we can say, okay, we can't turn back now? In your mind, I mean, I, I think that was six months ago for you, but but in some people's minds, I mean, and I'll use the example out in British Columbia where the uh, the premier out there, of course, just announced that they were going to continue with the pipeline uh, construction, notwithstanding the fact that he philosophically is opposed to it, but he says they've gone too far down the road, spent too much money, you got to do it now. Uh, that's a pragmatic approach to politics. Uh, pragmatism is not really contagious at Hamilton City Council, but uh, but do you see a point where you can just say, look, at the debate's over now, this thing's going ahead whether you like it or not? Well, that's my view. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean, though, that it's locked in uh, no matter what. So, you know, what, what this council, uh, you know, would have to reconsider the entire process, and I think that's a tall order for this council. But when we hit the next council, uh, it's a clear slate. Uh, they, it's a simple majority as to whether or not they want to move forward on the project. And in Ottawa, uh, they've, uh, they went through the same kind of process. They, in fact, had a, an agreement signed, sealed, and delivered. Uh, and they, during the election process, there was a candidate that ran against it, uh, became successful as mayor, and they killed the project. Cost them $70 million, I believe, in total, uh, in terms of fines and uh, the lawsuits that ensued as a result of the signed contract. The next election, another mayor came in, and they went right back to it again and built the exact same line that's now being finished in Ottawa. So an additional $70 million spent with uh, no benefit, uh, and then went right back to uh, building what they set out to build in the first place. So. Anything is possible. Uh, does it make sense to stop? Absolutely not. Uh, this is the right project for our community. And you know what? All the announcements we're hearing in Toronto, subway, a new subway line, 10 times the cost of any LRT anywhere uh, in Toronto moving on to Vaughan. Uh, you know, great announcements. Taxpayers in Hamilton are helping to pay for that. Uh, are we crazy? Are we gonna, uh, now going to say to the rest of the province of Ontario, you can have your billion, billion dollars back and go spend it somewhere else and make those, those communities better and make those jobs happen in other communities? We need to make it happen here in Hamilton. But that's not a unanimous opinion on council. No, maybe not. Uh, but it was uh, unanimous enough or, or, or it's, you know, it's, it's a majority vote. So we had I believe 11, 11, 6, uh, the last vote on the uh, the uh, the issue. And I think some of them were in that pragmatic category saying we've gone too far down this road. Uh, there are too many benefits and too much money has been spent. We need to keep moving forward. And I hope that that's the message uh, coming out of this. You know what? Uh, the majority of council has supported this uh, all the way through. Uh, we need to continue on and make, make this project happen. There's a sidebar issue to this, and, and maybe that's giving it uh, too much of a slight here, because I think it's an important issue when it comes to public transit. Uh, and that's the the report that you, uh, as council, received a week or so ago about uh, the HSR performance uh, with some rather troubling statistics in there. A lot of absenteeism, uh, a lot of people taking time off uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, a lot of cancellation of buses through the course of the day. And, and you've seen... Uh, the reaction on social media to that, our friend Joey Coleman writes about it on a regular basis, and others, but uh, it's it's a legitimate concern, and it's a real concern, and I know that that was one of the elements in the debate yesterday, is do you really want to turn a LRT over to a, an HSR that doesn't really seem to, to have its act together right now for a variety of reasons? Now, I've talked to Eric Tock about this, we've talked to the uh, to the manager in charge of this. Uh, politically, you're going to have to do something about getting the HSR in shape. I mean, to go all the way back to that Rapid Ready report that's still sitting on somebody's desk someplace at City Hall. I've got a copy if you want one. I, still, I do, too. Yeah. All 703 pages of you it. You got it. Great reading over the holidays, by the way, if you haven't done it yet. I know, I know some counselors who haven't done it yet. But, but the reality that was in, stated in that report was LRT is only going to be successful if you can make HSR more competitive and, and more accessible 
and uh, and and you haven't done that yet. Clearly, the numbers you seem to be going backwards here. Well, I mean, there's a number of uh, issues at play here, and uh, you know, one of them is uh, you know the 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 18 percent absenteeism, which is uh, you know ju- just untenable. I mean, it, it, this is something that has to be curtailed and stopped. And uh, you know, there's a there's a bunch of elements uh, associated with that. Traditionally, it runs at about five percent, which is you know accounts for people that get sick or on on long-term disability. I mean, that's kind of a normal kind of a, a number in terms of how you operate. Uh, an 18 percent uh, spike. That's uh, that's unusual, and it needs to be rectified. Uh, we've, we've taken steps to do that. Uh, it, it no, there's no immediate fix, though. I think the numbers are going down. Uh, we've uh, you know made additional hires, and we've made a, a requirement for them to curtail the overtime that uh, that that is happening right now. And that that that's a significant factor in in some of this, I believe. That uh, these folks are now overworked. Traditionally, that's the way they've operated, but I, I think that has to stop. And uh, we need to move to a more regularized schedule. And and the investments that we're making, and they're not small, uh, seventy-two million dollar investment between the feds and the and the city of Hamilton on on infrastructure, on buses, on uh, new vehicles, on uh, a, a storage facility. Granted, uh, investments last year on uh, new vehicles and and additional services on the mountain. Uh, but there are other issues happening in our community that uh, that are kind of parsing the uh, the, the transit opportunities and such you know, as Lyft, Lyft, and Uber, and uh, uh, you know cycling and the uh, the cycling that we're seeing downtown and the uh, the Sobe bike uh, process are all having impact as well as the current economics and uh, you know with the oil prices uh, you know the gas prices being much much lower than they were. People are uh, making different choices. Uh, that's probably not going to last forever. And, uh, and the transit system, it has to be something that is sustainable over the long period of time to help, I, I think, a growing part of our population that's making this as a choice for them in terms of their, uh, their lifestyle. So, uh, you know, there are offsets and they're, they're, they're having impacts, but I think that those are temporary issues. I think we're seeing that across the board, actually, in North America. And I think those other car share, Lyft, Uber, uh, Sobe bike opportunities are having a bit of an impact on the transit system, but I think they'll, that they'll definitely rebound. And, you know, the more service, the more predictable, reliable service we provide, the more users we're going to have. But over and above all that, and those are issues and, and those are elements that, that many other cities are dealing with, is there a, a labor relations problem in this city? I mean, are people taking time off work? Because I've heard rumblings from some of the workers uh, who say, you know, we don't believe management, we don't trust management, we think uh, there's been a turn of attitude with management, some of the changes that have been made. Those are some of the things I'm hearing. And, and as a result, people are taking, quote unquote, time off. So let me let me characterize it in a way that I see it, and which is that I think our management is doing the managing that is required that hasn't happened, you know, in quite some time. So we, we heard the same actually, thing about Public Works about three or four years ago too. They're actually now managing the uh, the the, uh, the process and supervising the employees, and there is a bit of a pushback going on. I, I, I suspect, and uh, that, that, that has to end. We need the help and cooperation of our ATU members. We respect them all, and, uh, you know, this is work that uh, is important in our community. We want all of them to, uh, to uh, participate in getting our service to be a 100% reliable service that doesn't leave anybody standing in the curb. So we need the employees, and we need management working together. Uh, management is uh, doing what it needs to do, which is uh, manage the system in the best way possible so that we can deliver that service uh, for 
for our constituents, our residents out there that rely on the transit system. Uh, if that is not the mission of the ATU, then we need to have a broader conversation. Well, I'm I, I just wondering if there's something going on here that the city council has to pay attention to. And I don't necessarily think it's something you have to throw money at, but there seems to be an attitudinal shift that's going on now. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that. And I think the attitudinal shift has something to do with, uh, you know, a, mar- a more aggressive managerial approach that actually has a hands-on approach to how we manage the, uh, the day-to-day operations of our facility and ensuring that the employees get to work when they need to be at work. Uh, there's some pushback on that, and I think that's part of the, part of the issue. Are those unrealistic demands that management is making? No, I don't think so. I think they're, they're making the kinds of demands that would be expected of any employee. Uh, you know, show up for work. Uh, be there on time and uh, be there to, to fulfill your uh, fulfill your obligation. Was uh, that not happening before? Well, I mean that's a that's an open question. I think there are some uh, some issues around that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not here to point fingers. I what I want to do is no, to I'm have not naming a, names. I'm just I I'm talking a, about what may be a, a problem that council is going to have to deal with here. And I think I think that's one element of the problem. It is not a majority element of the problem, but is one element that we have to deal with. And uh, I think management is dealing with it. I think the previous managements, uh, one might argue, uh, weren't as uh, as a uh, uh, fastidious in terms of how they de- dealt with the day-to-day operations of, uh, of uh, our, our employees and the, and the drivers. So that, that's the change, and I think there may be some pushback or blowback on that change. We talked about this with Public Works a couple of years ago. Now it seems to be with HSR drivers. Uh, is, is, is this a, a malaise that that's, it's a, a, a problem for the city workforce? I mean, are we doing this department by department? No, I don't think so. And I think, uh, you know what, uh, the, the issues happen. This is a large organization, and issues happen from time to time that, uh, that need to be, uh, you know, addressed. My, my view has always been that we need to ensure that there is proper supervision and properly trained supervisors that, that are working in our organization. And I think that's been a, a weak link in the, in the uh, in the process, and we're addressing that uh, as as we should. And so, uh, you know, proper uh, proper management, proper supervision means that uh, that the job gets done as it should should happen. Uh, that there aren't uh, people taking advantage or taking time off when they don't deserve it, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think it's an endemic problem. I think it happens from time to time, and we need to deal with it as it happens. Which actually would fall under the guise of the city manager, not really a council move. Right. I mean, it's city manager oriented, but I mean, obviously council has a stake in this. We, uh, we are clearly uh, re- responsible for setting the policies that uh, require them to, to do the management process that they're entitled to do. So uh, we are, uh, de- I'm definitely concerned about uh, all of those elements, and I know that our management and our city manager is uh, on top of uh, dealing with those issues as they occur. Uh, can we prevent all labor uh, disruption issues? No. Uh, are we uh, in, in ensuring that we deal with them in an effective and, uh, and proactive manner? Yes. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Mayor's Town Hall, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio. Uh, congratulations are in order, first of all. Uh, Mayor Eisenberger is now the head uh, and the chair of the ICF, which is the Intelligent Community Forum. Uh, can we extrapolate from that that Hamilton is an intelligent community? Is that what this is all about? We're certainly, uh, we're getting, certainly there. getting there. Yeah, for sure. You know what? Uh, I mean, I was asked to. Uh, I mean, I've been I've been pushing our intelligent community digital capacity network uh, significantly. We have a task force that's working on uh, increasing our digital capacity and. 
our intelligent uh, kind of quotient as, as a community. And, uh, you know, that effort has, uh, has been, uh, you know, well recognized as being positive. We, uh, we made the top 21 out of some 400 municipalities in terms of our, our intelligent community standing, which is a positive thing. I think we're going to use that to, uh, to attract more people to come to our community and take advantage of that. We're looking to, uh, to do a digital our, our fiber optic line in the uh, the LRT corridor, which would be a huge leap forward in terms of our digital capacity, in terms of fiber optic and the volume of uh, digital material that can ca- cover. So uh, I was asked to, uh, to participate in this. I thought it was a, a good message for the city. It's certainly a good opportunity to help build uh, an intelligent communities network in Canada. And uh, John Young has uh, been a great leader, was a former uh, you know, board member of mine at Canadian Urban Institute. Um, is a very sharp individual that's part of the ICF International that uh, has now branched out into ICF Canada and a well-regarded, highly uh, highly respected organization, and I'm uh, happy to be part of it. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a good message for Hamilton, where we need to go as a community, and uh, I'll certainly do my part with this organization to increase the digital capacity in Canada. Uh, some other issues here I want to touch on before we get to uh, phone calls and emails and tweets. Uh, one is a report you guys got from uh, financial staff at the city the other day, and it has to do with the value of the Stelco lands, mm-hmm. uh, and not good news really from the city standpoint. No, it's uh, you know it's uh, it certainly causes a two to three million dollar financial tax hit on the city of Hamilton based on the assessed value. It's uh, it's it's hard these to are, understand. These are our friends at Impact that do the assessments. Yeah, and you know what? And uh, if I were an industrial land user, I'd be wringing my hands with glee today, knowing that the industrial land value in Hamilton is a hundred dollars an acre, or you know, anywhere in the province of Ontario, uh, ostensibly. And Impact is an organization that's supposed to be arm's length. Uh, uh, looking at assessed values based on uh, comparative numbers, uh, not unlike when you do, uh, you know, an assessed value on your home for sale. You know, the realtor would come in and bring in comparisons of how property sales are happening in your community and in and around that neighborhood, and say, here's what the, you know the the approximate value should be. You know, value for the city of Hamilton means assessment value, and it means tax dollars. And uh, right now, uh, you know, they're they've taken the assess- assessment value of the industrial lands from 180 thousand dollars an acre to a hundred dollars an acre uh unfathomable i mean i don't understand it at all so we haven't seen any based on what well, i know they never have question. to justify it well they should and they do uh, have what, to no justify kidding. it. and so we don't know what it's based on and uh, we're trying to find out we've launched an appeal uh we did have conversations with them beforehand to say how how can you possibly make that kind of a transition from a hundred and eighty thousand dollars an acre to a hundred dollars an acre we know right now there are properties being bid on at some $350,000 an acre in the industrial area. So it, it just defies logic how they came up with this. And uh, we want to we want to appeal and uh, we want to, you know, let the province know that uh, there's, a, there's an organization out there that doesn't seem to be following its assessment rules as they should follow. They're an independent organization, non-political, should be uh, independently looking at values as they exist, not as they would like them to be. And uh, they came up with this $100 number. It's, uh, it's hard to understand. Anybody who has dealt with impact, and, and at one time or another, anybody who's a landowner would, because, I mean, you get your assessed value, and, and this agency, this quote-unquote arms-length agency, gives an evaluation of what they think the property is worth, and that's, that's how you base your taxes. Mm-hmm. I, get, I get that. But we, for the last two and a half years, have had stories here about market values in Hamilton and land values in Hamilton skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. Now, it's leveled off a little bit in the last six or seven months, but it's still much higher than it's been over the last five years. So how can they justify this kind of a reduction? 
This is probably the only piece of property in Hamilton that's gone down in value over the last three years. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's hard to understand it completely. I don't get it. Uh, you know, you don't you don't understand it. I think the average taxpayer would look at this and go, "How does that make any sense?" Uh, you know, uh, values have increased significantly across the board, uh, and and there are properties being sold on the industrial side at three hundred thousand plus per per acre. So how they come up with this kind of a number, uh, you know, kind of out of thin air, that uh, you know, obviously it's either manufactured or or someone uh, someone has uh, you know ha- you know potentially and you know influencing their decision making process and you know I'm 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 not casting uh, you know aspersions on the organization but when you look at something like this and it's such an anomaly and such a such a, a, a radical change that doesn't make any sense then something else has to be going on and we don't know what it is but we're going to try and find out who are also the players here i mean who benefits from this the industrial land users uh, yeah. you know what uh, you know so uh, the irony is that the value of the lands, uh, uh, the former Stelco lands, the value of those lands is supposed to cover uh, the uh, the OPEBs, the uh, the benefits and pensions of uh, former Stelco employees. Uh, if they now set the value at $100 per acre, and, and I can tell you, Sam Marula quite cleverly put forward a motion yesterday saying, well, there's 500 acres, so $100 an acre will give you $50,000 plus one, which is the, the value that you've determined this uh, this uh, land to be, for, for all of those lands. And if we can acquire it at that basis, that would be a godsend. But it doesn't do anything for the pensioners that need those uh, the, the higher revenues and the higher values to uh, get their pensions and their benefits covered down the road. So it, it defies logic. Uh, there is still a land co that we've not yet heard uh, who's going to be on land co and what that organization is going to look at look like. We've kept uh, appealing to the province to have a long-term strategy to how do, how do we map out uh, not the, and maximize the future value of these lands going forward and to then have an organization to come along and saying, well, the, the value as it stands today is $100 per acre kind of sets us back, uh, you know, a million years. This makes makes no sense. Do they not become aware of the fact that, that this whole deal with U.S. Steel and the pensioners, uh, which, by the way, the province was was all over. I mean, they have their hands all over that. Mm-hmm. And and the math, as you've already mentioned, was that that money was going to go towards this. It was going to offset some of the costs. It was going to top up the pension fund, et cetera. Right. This wipes that out, which which essentially kills the, it doesn't kill the deal, but I mean, it doesn't fund the deal as, as the province had said was going to happen. Sure. Uh, now, having said that, you know, the assessed value doesn't necessarily translate into market value at this case. It should. It should. But in this instance, I can't imagine that anyone's going to be selling off this property at $100 an acre. Uh, that isn't going to happen. But it does affect our tax tax issues. So, you know, the assessed value set at $100 it means that we're going to take a 2 or $3 million tax hit on our budget each and every year. Uh, that's going to be a significant issue. Uh, that, Having said that, uh, you know, they still have to justify this value in some manner or another. They have to have comparables that they've used. Or, and if they didn't use them, then where did that number come from? And I, if I were a, an industrial landowner in some other part of Ontario, uh, knowing that MPAC serves all of Ontario, I'd be going to the assessment office office right now and asking for an appeal because I can get my taxes substantially reduced because of this precedent setting, uh, you know, issue here in Hamilton, it's setting the, the industrial land value at $100 an acre. So if I were uh, St- uh, DeFasco, and I'm not trolling for this, but if I were DeFasco, I'd be running to the MPAC office Al Goma, right now. Algoma's going to do the same thing. I mean, everybody's sure. going to look at this. Absolutely. And any, any of the industrial users that are on our waterfront are now going to look at this and say, well, there you go. There's a nice land value that we can, uh, we can lower our tax load by 
right? And, and lowering that tax loads means that taxes taxes don't come to the city of Hamilton. And one of our biggest issues, as you well know, is our commercial industrial tax base and the shrinking of that tax base and how we're trying to catch that up by, uh, you know, appealing to new commercial industrial uh, opportunities that can uh, make up the difference that we're now relying on our residential there's a residential tax base board. Okay, so you're outraged by this. A number of councillors spoke out about this. They're outraged by this. The mm-hmm. problem is, I know you're going to appeal this, mm-hmm. but it was Impact that did this. So who do you appeal to? It's Impact. The same people that gave you this are going to hear the appeal. That doesn't seem right. Sure. Well, well we're going to. We, that's the, our only option in, in terms of the process is to appeal there. But we are also going to appeal to uh, the premier and to uh, our elected representatives and let them know what their impact organization and an organization set up by the province of Ontario to make these assessments is actually doing on the industrial side here in Hamilton. Uh, that that has to be uh, something that has to be reviewed by uh, by this province, and and they have to then go to impact and say, how could you possibly, you know make this assessment, this, uh, this radical change on the industrial value, and an impact the, 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 the commercial industrial tax base potentially right across the province. And the city is going to have to make up that $2 million somewhere or start cutting programs. It's, it's an ugly scenario. Well, good luck with that. We make up the 2 or $3 million in, on, on the tax base. Uh, there's nowhere else for us to go. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. So as, as Mike uh, Segarek pointed out, it's another $8 on our tax bill, but that's only, that's only the Stelco lands. So if all the other industrial users do the same, then we're in, uh, in, in a world of hurt in terms of our uh, tax load. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here for the Mayor's Town Hall. Uh, Phil on email, bkelly900chml.com. Uh, good morning, Mr. Mayor. What is your opinion regarding the renovations of First Ontario Centre or possibility of building a new, smaller arena? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, th- let me thank uh, Mr. Andelar for uh, having, uh, you know, the, the, the franchise here in Hamilton. The Bulldogs have been an institution here in Hamilton, and he's done a terrific job of uh, not only when he moved the, uh, the, o- the uh, OHL fr- or the AHL franchise and brought in an OHL franchise, we thank him for all that great work. Uh, this is a complex issue. You know, we've got a uh, First Ontario Centre that we've invested millions and millions of dollars in that is... Uh, not in perfect shape, but it's certainly functional and usable. Uh, we've, we're investing m- uh, money into uh, bringing it back up to snuff in terms of getting the elevators working properly and all the other deficiencies that are out there, making it functional and ensuring that it stays that way. And we're going to have to look at, uh, you know, what, what are all the different scenarios around development around that uh, facility and what else can we package together that would uh, potentially uh, be attractive to an investor to, uh, to provide private sector monies to help revitalize or, in, or, or build new. And so uh, we, we need to go through that process. We have a, a process in place. Um, we've, we've uh, set out um, uh, some, some of our staff to actually start rallying together uh, some resources to try and uh, make that happen. Uh, a previous study done by uh, uh, Mr. Kajaski that was uh, funded by the private sector and provided to the City of Hamilton identified the First Ontario Centre as a good opportunity for redevelopment and repurposing. So um, there's lots to do. I, 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 I'm not convinced that a separate 10,000-seat uh, facility uh, is necessarily the answer, but it may be, it may be that, uh, that that fits into the mix somehow. And if it does, then we'll, we'll certainly work with Mr. Andelar to see where we can go and take advantage of his generous offer to, uh, to, to be a significant supporter of that financially. What do you see, though? And I understand the council's got to make a decision on this. And, and I, I, I saw Jasper's report on this, that, mm-hmm. and, and they talked about the scenarios. And you're talking significant dollars to even bring this up to speed. And, and I don't even want to get down this road about NHL. I'm just talking about making this a functional arena. 
And and then there's the possibility of doing other things. We, as I've t- said on the show, we were in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago for the Grey Cup, and and I saw what they've done to the Lansdowne area there, and uh, that where Lansdowne Park is, the new stadium there. Now Lansdowne Park is not in the, in the downtown of Ottawa. It's it's it, but it was a tired district that really needed a lot of work, and it has been totally rejuvenated. There's all kinds of commercial development. I, I, as a matter of fact, I talked to the developers a couple of years ago. I was introduced to them. And uh, we, we talked about their plans for that Lansdowne area, and they said the stadium, for our mind, is, is he says, I don't mean to be flippant, but it's a throw-in. It's the commercial and, and residential development that we want to see happen. And right. they, they have condos there, uh, huge office buildings, uh, great retail stuff that's going on there. Do you want to see that? Is that is that the vision you see for, for that area down around First Ontario Centre? Yeah, there and uh, and the other lands that we own not too far away from there. I mean, uh, Sir, the Sir John A. Macdonald site has come up. And well, I the know Board of Education's uh, already announced that they have plans for that area. They have, but I think that uh, you know if if there's a if there's a potential alternative that, that they might be uh, open to uh, kind of looking at all their all their other alternatives that have greater kind of city building value. Uh, there is uh, additional lands that we own on. Uh, on Barton Street and the uh, Tiffany lands. I mean, if you if you can look at what's available, uh, the convention center has actually been thrown into the mix here, because uh, there is certainly a need for us to have a, a larger, uh, more improved convention facility as well. This one's uh, deemed to be undersized and not uh, suitable for future convention capacity. Do you agree so, with that? I do. I do. I think I think there's a need to have a look at that. But the question is, how do you make that happen? And so. The, the model, in fact, is the Ottawa model, where they've actually taken a, 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 a total development opportunity wrapped around a stadium that provided a lot of commercial and residential uh, investments that uh, then becomes attractive to investors, investors to look at. So I think that's the kind of package that we need to consider here. Um, to, to piece it off to the mountain uh, arena on the mountain, or you know, taking up, I think what I heard at one point is let, let's do a part of McQuesten Park and put a you know a small arena there. I think that's a that's a non-starter. Um, someone has has uh, discussed the the notion of potentially uh, you know a portion of the Lime Ridge Mall site area where Old McDonald's used to be, certainly a large chunk of space there that's p- possible for a smaller arena. Those are ideas, but I still think that it's a inner city opportunity for us to look at a, a larger redevelopment plan, not unlike what they did in in Ottawa. I think that is really definitely the model that provides not only the entertainment aspect of it, but residential and commercial opportunities around it. Well, nobody's going to invest, I wouldn't think anyway, in a retrofit. Uh, you're going to have to offer something that's a little shiny to attract that, that kind of attention. Potentially, and uh, and that's not off the table. I mean, that's uh, you know that's all part of the discussion, and it really is a matter of uh, you know bringing in some developers and saying, well, you know what what what's necessary here to make this viable for you. Uh, and uh, I, I know that those investors investors are out there. It's a matter of pulling them together and seeing uh, you know what's possible. Uh, it's not not something that's going to get resolved in the next couple of months. This is probably a couple of years in the making. But Ottawa was in that uh, mode as well, and uh, and and you're right. The uh, the uh, the stadium itself was kind of a lost leader in that process. Yes, we'll rebuild your stadium if if you allowed us to do this on these lands. And what can you contribute? Yeah, and to and, and by happen? the way, there was a city election fought in that issue about lands down. Yep, uh, that was a factor. I know LRT was a factor, but so was the lands down issue in Ottawa. And yeah. it, the, there was a change in, in the mayoralty there as a result of of the stand that council took on that. And I don't know if we're going to go down that road here in Hamilton. But to your point. Uh, I don't know who's out there. I, and, and by the way, the people that, that uh, signed on and, and paid for that study that uh, Mr. Kajavsky uh, did uh, all made it quite clear that they're not investors in a new si- situation here. They just wanted to see the report. They wanted right. to see some numbers. Yep. Only one person stepped up right now. 
that actually says, yeah, I'm going to put money on the table. Have you talked to Mr. Andelar about this? Uh, we've, we've talked to him uh, previously, and our staff has, has, has discussed this. Uh, he's well aware of all the reports that have been out there. I've met uh, with Mr. Andelar previously on the, the, uh, the whole idea of uh, what Jasper Kajaski was talking about in terms of that bigger play. Uh, so yeah, we've we've had communications with Mr. Andelar, and uh, you know, in every opportunity, I thank him for uh, you know his uh, his uh, commitment to uh, bringing uh, you know quality hockey to our community, and he's been doing it for a long time. So we appreciate that. But this is a big issue, and uh, he's one part of that. And I think the uh, the others out there, I think, uh, will 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 be attracted by the opportunity, and uh, we need to package that opportunity and make sure that we've got the elements in place that actually is attractive to investors to look at a kind of full package that would allow them to not only, uh, you know, rebuild a facility or build new, but also profit from uh, additional residential commercial activities. Uh, so much more to talk about, but we're just about out of time. I've got 30 seconds left, and uh, uh, your levy, your annual levy yes, is coming up. It's yes. Christmas time. I forgot all about Christmas that. Uh, busy time. with it, doing other stuff. Uh, and it's right on New Year's Day this year? The New lev- Year's Day, yeah. Let me let me wish all of your listeners a, a very Merry Christmas. You know, we, Hamilton's had a great year, and uh, we certainly anticipate another great year in, uh, in 2018. And we're going to kick off that great year with the Lieutenant Governor, Elizabeth Doswell, on uh, January 1 at City Hall at 12 o'clock. Uh, come to the, the New Year's levy and uh, say hello to uh, myself and uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Doswell and kick off the new year with us. And I really look forward to a you know, prosperous and healthy uh, 2018. So uh, Merry Christmas to all and Merry Christmas to you, Bill. And to you too, Mr. Mayor and Thank Diane and the, and the rest of the Eisenbergers and uh, everybody down at City Hall. Uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Always a pleasure. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's, uh, it's been a, a, a heck of a week uh, when you start looking at some of the horrendous crimes that, uh, that we've uh, had to uncover and talk about. Uh, the, obviously, the Babcock trial was part of that. But the other, the shocker for an awful lot of people, of course, was the, the deaths of uh, the Sherman family. Uh, in Toronto, uh, and uh, th- well, the investigation that's going on around this, uh, which uh, is uh, Joe Warmington writes about in the Toronto Sun today, actually seems to raise more questions than it does answer. Uh, the piece is called "Questions Around Deaths of Billionaire Couple." Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun uh, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML in just a couple of seconds, uh, and and you, just so you understand the background on this, of course, we're dealing with uh, Honey and Barry Sherman. Uh, a family that's well known, of course, in in social circles in Toronto, and of course in the business world. Uh, very, very wealthy couple, uh, of course, because of uh, the work that they have done with pharmaceuticals and their, their philanthropic work right through the Toronto area. And uh, it was a shocker uh, when their bodies were discovered in their home. And uh, police have investigated this. Uh, there's a lot of rumor. Uh, police seem to be rather vague in their description about this which is obviously, I think, why Joe wrote the piece. And uh, we, I think we've hooked up with Joe now from uh, the Toronto Sun. Joe Warmington joins us here on the Bill Keller Show. Morning, Joe. How are you doing today? Well, doing okay, Bill. Good to hear your voice. It's obviously, I think you've described it well. Uh, it's, it's really shocked the community, and you know, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of questions here. Well, uh, the piece that you wrote today in the Sun, uh, questions surrounding deaths of billionaire couple, I think uh, underscores a number of these questions that we're asking. And uh, since since these bodies were discovered last uh, Friday, I guess it was Friday morning, uh, at first it was, well, we didn't know what it was. Uh, and then there was some talk about suicide, uh, but it, it's homicide uh, uh, detectives that are looking into this. Uh, Joe, you've covered a lot of these. Uh, did, can you make any sense of what you're actually being told officially on this so far? Well, it's it's tricky because there's also politics 
in the mix here because of the prominence of the people. And so, you know, what? everybody's got to make sure that they've crossed all the T's, dot all the I's. And so that's what we're, we're, we're dealing with. Now, it is one of the strangest things that I have come across. And, it, you know, you got to remember that in the case you were just talking about the Millards there, in the case of Laura Babcock and in Wayne Millard, and I remember doing your show about this, I wrote these kinds of columns and working a lot with Ross uh, McLean in those days on digging this, this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Those were both uh, deemed, one was, you know, Laura Babcock, no one seemed to know where she was, but there was no criminal investigation. And in the case of Wayne Millard, it was a suicide. And both, uh, you know, turned around to later be determined as homicide. And it's the same with Tess Ritchie here, here in Toronto. So you just never know. Sometimes the unexplainable uh, needs to be explained, and that's where we're at here. But the the questions you raise uh, about this, and, you know, it took a while, obviously, to get the official cause of death, and police have released that. Uh, yet uh, you are able, as you always are, Joe, to, to be able to talk to some folks, not necessarily on the record, but but uh, people you know that are, are well acquainted with the investigation. And and some of the, the things that you have found out that police won't officially comment on right now really just make this this a, a, a much more murky picture. I mean, uh, we're not getting any clarity here. I mean, you, you've actually included in the piece today uh, what you've heard about uh, about how the bodies were found and where the bodies were found. And and I got to tell you, it doesn't sound like suicide. No, it sure doesn't. Um, you know, again, it's just so weird. I mean, I don't know if it's too graphic to describe it or not. I know if there's children in the car or you're listening with children, maybe take them to the other room, but it's it's one of these things, if I can. I mean, basically, they found them by the pool. There's kind of like a bar there, and they were hanging there with ropes, and their their jackets tied behind their back. So that's in essence to kind of tie up their hands. So you say, well, what does that mean? And is that something that could be done as a pact, or is that something that they're a murder-suicide or did someone come in and do this? Now, we've had no indication from police. They still stick to the credo that they're not looking for suspects. They haven't tightened up the scene bill. You know, you don't see the whole street uh, shut down to reflect something like that. So, you know, they're still looking at, from what I understand, a suicide or a murder-suicide, if you will. Um, but they have an open mind, as they should. To something beyond that and these details are really strange and of course the other the fact that there was nobody that you know seemed to know where they were and then they were found in it the day later there was staff in the house but hadn't checked the pool things like that so it's really strange well and and those are the circumstances and and I understand because you've covered as I say Joe so many of these cases over the years and written about it in the Sun that uh, it's not unusual for family members to 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 give short shift to the idea of suicide, and we've heard those comments before. Oh no, I didn't think so. They didn't seem to be the sorts. Uh, you know, there didn't seem to be any outward signs, according to family members and neighbors, of depression or any angst about things. Uh, they were planning a, a trip. We're told uh, down to Florida uh, in just a couple of days. Uh, you know, they were planning on building a new house. They were talking to people about that. It seemed as if they were looking toward the future uh, and, and not so much about worrying about the present in, in these circumstances. 
Uh, yet the police investigation to this point seems to indicate, as you've as you've written about, that uh, that they I don't know that they've made up their mind, but they seem to be working on this murder suicide theory. I know they say they're open minded about this, but they're not carrying on the investigation like they're being open minded about it. I think they are open minded about it, but I think that there's a reality that that they are facing. Again, we're not privy to what they're seeing. We know there's cameras in that house, and we know that they, you know, are experts at forensic evidence. So we know that from sources that there was a secondary scene. So something happened there. Uh, I was told originally that, you know, that uh, Mrs. Sherman was moved from one location to that location and, you know, later put in that position. So you say, well, how could, if you're pointing the finger at, you know, 75-year-old man and say, how could he have done that? Uh, that's a legitimate thing to raise. And so it it'll be interesting to see because I think what we're all looking at now is a funeral on Thursday. We feel for these uh, children. You can imagine what they're going through. You don't want to imagine it. And then you've got people like us talking about this so publicly when we wouldn't do it if it was not a prominent person that was worth billions of dollars. And so, you know, you can see the anger that they would have. So it's a, it's a really, it's an awful deal here. And, you know, I don't know what to say other than that. I mean, at some point, though, Bill, it has to come out, whatever it was, and we're just going to have to deal with it. I mean, we we know right from the get-go that uh, when police started this investigation over the weekend, Joe, and, and you touched on it again in the piece, that there were no signs of forced entry, uh, no suicide note uh, to indicate that there was anything going on there, anything untoward. Uh, we're also told, at least in some circles, and I think you touched on this in the piece today, that uh, there is cameras, there were cameras all over the place, but the one that I guess in the pool area uh, had been disconnected. Uh, who did that? Uh, was that part of a plan? We don't know any of these questions as of as of yet. Did you get any sense officially from police about where they are in the investigation? If if in fact they they seem to be centering on this idea, or, or are they waiting for some revelation, some piece of evidence that may turn their minds towards uh, something other than a, than a suicide? Well, no. I mean, I think. This is one of those cases where you look at what they don't say as opposed to what they do say. And what they don't say is that they're looking for suspects. What they don't say is that it was a homicide. Um, we keep it to the suspicious thing. They don't seem to have updates. They are on the scene, uh, you know, white forensic suits and all that stuff. They're really working that. We're told they're going to be there for quite a while still. I think uh, talking to different people... They do have an open mind. They are almost doing it the opposite way they normally do it. You know how you normally have a scene and then you go from there. They're doing it the other way, which is they don't have a scene, but they're doing the work of, you know, Mr. Sherman's business, Dr. Sherman, uh, obviously the whole background of Honey Sherman, the kids, different litigations, all of those things are being looked at as if they had a scene that added up to, to something, but... Again, they're not saying very much of this official, and um, so it's, it is a tricky situation. And you know what? Um, you know, we do this job, and we try to inform the public, but we don't always enjoy doing it. And, and you've got you to believe me, like, we're not enjoying this at all. This is not fun. 
No, I know, and you've got to ask some difficult questions, uh, some uncomfortable questions, in, in, in the interest of trying to find out exactly what's happening and to garner some factual information about this. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're bothering people. I, I get that. It's, it's, it's tough, and, and you're dealing with people that are involved in the investigation and family members who, uh, who clearly are, are, are upset all, about this. We all don't want it to be suicide. We all don't want it to be murder-suicide. It's not that we want it to be murder, but at least it, it would be, you know, these fine people who've done so much for so many people. Um, you know, I, I don't profess to have known them really, but, I mean, I, because of what I do, I travel in circles that, that they would, you know, I would cover circles that they would travel in, sure. if you will. And so, you know, and I know a lot of people that know them, and, you know, the, I don't find anything. I mean, I saw what Steve Pakin tweeted, and he's my friend, and we talked about it. Well, yeah, let's get into that, because that's that's a twist on this thing. Uh, and, well, you, you explain what Steve tweeted, because I think that's that's very germane to this discussion. Well, he tweeted on Sunday that he had from a trusted source that there there was some sort of a a criminal investigation or financial investigation. It wasn't really overly specific on Dr. Sherman that would explain suicide or help explain it. And, you know, he, he subsequently took the tweet down. And so I contacted him about that. I probably, you know, I'm a pretty big fan of, of Steve. He's mm-hmm. a very important journalist here in Canada, but, um, he said he didn't take it down because of accuracy. It was more because of some unfortunate way that it was worded to him and how he related it. And uh, obviously how they died and, and kind of like the analogy that he used to describe uh, this investigation closing in, if you will. That's why he took it down. But, but has not, anybody has anybody questioned police about this? That, uh, that yes, uh, I, I've called all kinds of police sources about it. No one knows about it. But what I heard today was, it might have more to do with American uh, issues. Uh, but again, I don't have anything to confirm that. I'm sort of gossiping now. But, you know, what I understand is that there were some American concerns. So, you know, we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. That's the problem with the story is that every five minutes there's some new revelation. And this guy, Barry Sherman, was so private. You know, he did business with Frank D'Angelo. Uh, he did business with... You know, just about every charity here. Uh, there was a guy on local radio here in Toronto today was talking about how he was just in his office a week ago, and he was hitting this guy up for charity for the Sherman campus of one of the colleges. Again, it does not sound like a guy that, you know, was looking to pack it in, but was looking to raise money for the future. So there's just, you know, real head-scratchers uh head scratching going on here. The, the one element to this, and, and going back to your experience in covering these for so many years and talking with police and investigators, and uh, is, is that we know that police may not be forthcoming with a lot of information at this stage, Joe, but you know that they're working this. Uh, and we saw that with the Bosma case, because there was a concern at that time when Tim first went missing. Uh, were police really doing much about this? Well, once the trial started and we started to get some information about what actually was going on during that time, uh, we knew that they were very actively investigating that right from the get-go. Uh, they just weren't talking to the public about that. you got to assume that that's going on in this scenario, too. Yeah, I don't only assume it, I know it. And I've always known right from the beginning that, they, you know, the, the, any comments that Toronto police aren't taking this seriously is, you know, this is inaccurate. I mean, it's just 
I mean, I get the frustration and the anger, but you've got to be fair, too. They can't share everything. Uh, and, you know, obviously people like me nosing around and people like you nosing around, Bill, doesn't help them. We have to do our job. They have to do their job. But they're doing it. And if this is a homicide, uh, you know, obviously it's been well-cloaked one. It's not obvious, which would really be scary to think that someone could go to this trouble. But if it is that, they're going to tell us that. If it was a murder-suicide, somebody lost their temper and it's just unfortunate, they'll tell us that, just like they would if it wasn't a rich family. And if it was a suicide, you know, it's obviously uh, more of a, a family thing, but I think in this case, because it's so public, we'll get a rundown on that too. So I guess we'll have to be patient. In the meantime, you know, uh, the, the whole thing is that this international center, I think it's there, they're going to have this funeral. There's so many people that, that they knew uh, that are going to be attending. It's just going to be really emotional. And, of course, there's cloud hanging over it the investigation. Well, these uh, people that are doing the investigation, uh, you know them, uh, you know their reputation, they're good at what they do, and uh, they don't want to make any statement, definitive statement, until they've actually got evidence to back it up. So I, I guess we have to be patient above all. Uh, the piece is called Questions Surround Deaths of Billionaire Couples. I just sent the Toronto Sun today. Joe, thanks as always for the great work you're doing on this, and, and thanks for the time today. And if we don't talk to each other, have a great Christmas, you and the family. Yeah, thank you very much. You too, to yourself and your family and all your listeners. It's always uh, an honor to be on with you, Bill. And uh, you know what? Have a good holiday. I was right about Hamilton booming, wasn't I? Yeah. Ahead of everybody. You nailed it. <laughs> Thanks, uh, again. Thanks again. Thanks again, Joe. I to live there. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Warrington for the Toronto Sun. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.